Chapter thirty three of The Side of the Angels by Basil King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter thirty three. When Jasper Fay was tried for the murder of Claude Masterman and acquitted of the charge, it was generally felt that the ends of justice had been served. No human being, whatever his secret opinion, could have desired the further punishment of that little old man whose sufferings might have expiated any possible crime in advance. The jury, having found it improbable that at his age, and with his infirmities, he should have been lurking in the village at ten o'clock at night, and waiting in the neighbourhood of Colcourt Jail at dawn of the next morning, the verdict was accepted with relief, not only in the little courthouse of the county town, but by the outside public. To none was this absolution more nearly of the nature of a joy than to the unfortunate young man's family. That was in the winter of 1912, and in the meanwhile Lois had been led so successfully by her substitute for love as to be at times unaware of her lack of the divine original. For she was busy, so it seemed to her, every day of every week and every minute of every day. The first dreadful necessities on that night of the ninth of July having been attended to, her thought flew at once to the father and mother of the dead boy. Thor, dear, I know exactly what I'm going to do about them, if you'll let me. It was early morning by the time she said that, and all that was immediately pressing was over. Claude was lying in one of the spare rooms that had been prepared for him, and Dr. Noonan, together with the four or five grave, burly men, Irish-Americans as far as she could judge, who had been in and about the house all night hunting for traces of the crime, had gone away. Those who were still beating the shrubbery and the grounds were not in view from the library windows. Mags and his wife were in the house, as well as Dearlove and Brightston, getting it ready for reoccupation, since it was but seemly that the dread guest who had come under its roof should be decently lodged. Thor, having spent some hours before the stupefied village authorities, was surprised and obscurely disappointed not to be put under arrest. Public disgrace would have appeased in a measure the clamour of self-accusation. To be treated with respect, and taken at his word in his account of what had happened between himself and Claude, was like an insult to a martyr's memory. When dismissed to his house, he found it hard to go. Having dragged himself back through the grey morning light, it was to discover strange wonders wrought in the immediate surroundings. Lois and her four assistants had whisked the coverings from the furniture, and restored something like an air of life. Even the library, having been sufficiently noted and described, had been set in what was approximately order, the broken picture taken from its nail, and the broken window hidden by a curtain. On the threshold of the room, Thor paused, shrinking from a spot which henceforth he must regard as cursed. But Lois insisted, "'Come in, Thor, dear, come in.' She felt it imperative that she should overcome on the instant anything in the way of terrible association. He must counteract remorse. He must not let himself be haunted. She herself sat still, therefore, with the restrained demeanour of one who has seen nothing in the circumstances with which she has not been able to cope. Pale, with dark rings under the eyes betraying the inner effect of the night of stress, she nevertheless carried herself as if equal to confronting developments graver still. The strength she inspired came from rising to the facts as to some tremendous matter of course. Now that there was a lull in the excitement, 
she had been quietly discussing the conditions with Uncle Sim and Dr. Hilary. The latter went forward as Thor, tall, gaunt, red-eyed, the wound in his forehead staunched with plaster, advanced into the room. "'You are face to face with the great moral test, me dear Thor,' he said, laying his hands on the young man's shoulders. "'But you'll rise to it.' Thor started back, less in indignation than in horror. "'Rise? Me?' "'Yes, you, my dear Thor. You'll climb up on it and get it under your feet. The best use we can make of mistake and calamity is to stand on them and be that much higher up. I don't care what your sin has been or what your self-reproach. Now that they're there, you'll utilise them for your spiritual growth. Neither do I say God help you, for I'm convinced in my soul that he's doing it.' Thor moved uneasily from under the weight of the benedictory hands. It was as part of his rejection of mercy that he muttered, "'I don't know anything about him.' "'Don't you now? Well, that's not so important. He knows all about you. It's not what we know about God, but what God knows about us that tells most in the long run.' He passed on into the hall, where he picked up his hat and went out. Uncle Sim, who, with more of Don Quixote in his face than ever, had been pacing up and down the room, threw over his shoulder, "'Always said you were on the side of the angels, Thor, and you are.' Thor found his way wearily to the chimney-piece, where he stood with his face buried in his hands and his back to his two companions. He groaned impatiently. "'Ah, don't talk about angels!' Uncle Sim continued his pacing. "'But I will. How's the time? What, after all, are they but the forces in life that make for the best, and who's ever been on their side more than you?' Thor groaned again. "'What good does that do me now?' "'This good that when you've been with them they'll be with you, and don't you forget it. Life doesn't forsake the children who've been trying to serve it, not even when they lose control of themselves for a few minutes and do, do what they're sorry for afterwards.' Thor writhed. "'I killed, Claude.' "'Oh, no, you didn't, Thor, dear,' Lois said quietly. "'It's wrong for you to keep saying so. We can see perfectly well what has happened.' "'Can't we, Uncle Sim? "'If Claude revived while you were away "'and went out to get more air, "'and someone, as you think, was lurking in the shrubbery. "'But if it hadn't been for me— "'As far as that goes, I might as well say, "'if it hadn't been for me. "'I've told you how he came to me two days ago "'and how I discouraged him. "'We're all involved, you no more than the rest of us.' "'If he is involved more than the rest of us,' "'Uncle Sim declared, "'It's all the more reason why the good forces by which he stood should now stand by him. "'It's a matter of common experience to all who've ever made the test that they do.' "'He turned more directly to Thor. "'There's a verse in one of those old songs I'm fond of quoting at you. "'I'll, I'll never trouble you with another,' he promised hurriedly, "'in answer to a movement of protest on his nephew's part. "'If you'll only listen to this. "'It's right to the point, and runs this way.' The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him, and delivereth them. They're camping round about you now, Thor, as I've always told you they would. Thor raised his head just enough to say savagely over his shoulder, But when I never have feared him in the way you mean, and don't. Oh, but you have and do. There's two types for that sort of thing, both sketched in graphic style by the master. There's the two sons sent to work in the vineyard, of whom one said to his father, I go, sir, and went not. The other said, I will not, but went. Whether of them twain, the master asked, did the will of his father. I leave it to yourself, Thor. 
unable to escape from his ingenious pardon that caught and blessed him whether he would or no, Thor remained silent, while the uncle addressed himself to the niece. "'I'll be off now, Lois, but I'll come back before long and bring Amy. We'll stay here. The house'll need to have people in it to make it look as if it was lived in, till Archie and Ina can be got at and brought home.' They turned and looked from one to the other distressfully. "'Poor father and mother, what about them?' It was then that Lois showed that the matter had already received her attention. "'Thor, dear, I know exactly what I am going to do, if you'll let me.' She had been so efficient throughout the night that both men listened expectantly while she sketched her plan. She would cable the facts as succinctly as she could put them to her own father and mother, who were in their petit troupe cher on the north coast of France. They would then cross to England and break the news to Mr. and Mrs. Masterman. The very fact of the breach between her parents on the one side and the bereaved couple on the other was an additional reason for charging the former with the errand of mercy. Where so much had been taken, it was the more necessary to rally what remained. Having expressed his approval of these suggestions, Uncle Sim took his departure. "'Where is he?' Thor asked at once. "'Come.' Though she rose, she lingered to say, with a manner purposely kept down to the simplest and most matter-of-fact plain, "'You'll come up to the house and have breakfast, won't you, Thor? It will be ready about eight. As he began to demur on the ground that he couldn't eat, she insisted, "'Oh, but you must. You know that yourself. You'll feel better, too, when you've had a bath. You can't take one here, because Mrs. Maggs hasn't put the towels out. Cousin Amy will attend to that when she comes down.' These and similar maternal counsels having been given and received, she led the way into the hall, and into pause again at the foot of the stairs. "'I shall go out now to send my cablegram to Mamma. The sooner I get it off, the better it will be, so that they can cross from Havre to Southampton to-night. I've got it all thought out and condensed, and I shall write it in French, so as to keep it from the people in her own office here. I suppose that everything will be in the papers by the afternoon, and we shall have to accept the publicity.' Seeing the pain in his face, she took the opportunity to say, "'Oh, we can do that well enough, Thor, dear. We mustn't be afraid of it. We mustn't flinch at anything. Whatever has to come out will get its significance only from the way we bear it. And we can bear it well.' Having advanced a few steps up the stairs, she turned again on the first landing, speaking down toward him as he mounted. "'If possible, I should like to tell Rosie myself. It would be a shock to her, of course.' "'but I want to be with her when she has to meet it. "'Don't you think I ought to be?' "'On his expressing some form of mute agreement, she continued, "'Then if you approve I shall telephone to Jim Breen, "'asking him to bring her to see me. "'Rosie will guess by my sending for her "'that something strange has happened. "'I shall word my message to her in that way.' "'Her last appeal was made to him "'as she stood with one hand on the knob of the door "'beyond which Claude was lying. "'For, dear,' "'I hope you get at the truth of the things Uncle Sam and Dr. Hillary have been saying. "'There's a great message to you there. "'You are on the side of the good things, you know. "'You always have been, and always will be.' "'He shook his head. "'It's too late to say that to me now.' "'Oh, no, it isn't. "'And what's also not too late to say is that you mustn't let yourself be ridden by remorse.' "'His haggard eyes seeming to ask her how he could help it, she continued— Remorse is one of the most futile things we know anything about. It can't undo the past, while it destroys the present and poisons the future. 
he was almost indignant. "'But when you've... when you've given way, as you say you gave way last night, "'you brace yourself against doing it again. "'You make it a new starting point. Isn't that it?' "'Yes, but if you're like me.' "'With her free hand she brushed back the shock of dark hair from his forehead. "'It was the first touch of personal contact between them since his sudden reappearance.' "'If one is like you, Thor, of course it's harder. "'You're a terrific creature. "'I begin to see that now. "'I never took it in before, "'because in general you're so restrained. "'I know it's the people who are most restrained "'who can be swept most terribly by passion, "'but I hadn't expected it of you. "'Even so, it's the sort of thing "'which only goes with something big in the soul.' "'He put up a hand protestingly. "'Don't!' "'But I must. "'It ought to be said.' "'You should understand it. "'Fundamentally, I see it quite plainly now, "'you're the big primitive creature "'that's only partially tamed "'by the tenderest of tender hearts. "'Do you know what you remind me of? "'Of a great St. Bernard dog "'that asks nothing better than to love everyone "'and save life, "'but which, when it's roused... "'You see what I mean,' she went on, "'with a kind of soothing, serious cajolery. "'Thor, dear, I was never so afraid of you "'as I've been this night.' "'and I never loved,' was what she was going to say. "'But as on the day in the winter woods, "'she suppressed the word for another. "'I never admired you so much. "'I'm going to make a confession. "'What you say you felt toward Claude "'is what I've often felt myself in, in glimpses. "'God knows I don't say that to malign him. "'I shouldn't say it at all if it were not to point out "'that you wouldn't have done him any more harm, "'not that when it came to the act, than I myself. "'Would you now?' He hung his head, murmuring brokenly. No. What we've got to see is that you're very human, isn't it? And that's what they mean, Uncle Sim and Dr. Hillary, when they say that you're face to face with a great moral test. They mean that after you've used what, what's happened with in the last few hours, as you can use it, as you can use it, Thor dear, you'll be a far stronger man than you were before, and you were a strong man already.' With eyes downcast, he murmured words to the effect that it was difficult to see the way. "'Won't the way be to take each new thing as it comes? And there are some very hard things still to come, you know. As a step, to climb by, to get it under our feet as something that holds us up, instead of over our heads as something that crushes us down. Won't that be the way? It may be like climbing a calvary, but all the same we should be there, up, instead of down.' And, she added with a smile so faint that it was in her eyes rather than on her lips, and you know, Thor, darling, that no one is ever on a calvary alone. With these words she turned the handle of the door, leading him into a room from which the morning light was only partially excluded, and about which vases and bowls of roses had already been set. Claude was lying naturally, wearing a suit of his own pyjamas, white with a little pink stripe, his face turned slightly, and, as it were, expectantly, toward the two who approached. Having entered the room first, Lois kept to the background, leaving Thor to go to the bedside alone. The difference between the dead Claude and the sleeping one was in the expression. In the sleeping Claude the features were always as if chiselled in marble, and, like marble, cold. The dead Claude's face, on the contrary, radiated that which might have passed for warmth and life. The look was one he would have worn if mystified and pleased by something he was trying to understand. In any other case, 
Thor would have explained away this phenomenon on grounds purely physiological. But since it was Claude, he found himself swept by an invading wonder. He knew what people more credulous than himself would say. They would say that on the instant of the great change toward which he had been so suddenly impelled, even poor Claude, with his narrow, earthly vision, had been dowered with an increase of perception that bewildered and perhaps rejoiced him. Thor couldn't say this himself, but he could wonder. Was it possible that Claude, with this pleasing, puzzled dawn upon his face, could have entered into phases of life more vivid than any it had left behind? Thor found the question surging within his soul, but before he could silence it with any of his customary answers, he heard the counsel of wise old Havieux of the Institut Pasteur, Nenier jamais rien. But his need was emotional and not philosophical. Stooping, he kissed once more the lips on which there was this quiver of a new life that almost made them move, and sank on his knees beside the bed. Lois, who knew that beyond any subsequent moment this would be the one of last farewell, slipped softly from the room and closed the door behind her. She remembered as she did so that apart from her timid touch on his hair there had been no greeting between her husband and herself since his cry to her as she sat on the balcony in the darkness. But perhaps the substitute for love didn't call for it. She went downstairs to carry out her intentions of ringing up Jim Breen and sending her cablegram to France. Since the necessity for doing the former would take her to her own house, she would have the chance of changing her dress before the relative publicity of the telegraph office in the square. She would need also to explain the circumstances to her servants, who by this hour would be moving about the house, and might be alarmed on finding that her room had not been occupied. The door to the garden portico being that which would probably be unlocked, she turned into Willoughby's Lane, where her attention was caught by the sight of two men coming down the hill. What she saw was a young man helping an older one. The old man leaned heavily on his companion, hobbling with the weariness of one who can barely drag himself along. Lois was seized by sudden faintness, but a saving thought restored her. It was no more than the prompting to give this spent wayfarer a cup of coffee as he passed her door, but it met the instant's need. By a deliberate effort of the will, she banished every suggestion beyond this kindly impulse. If there were graver arguments to urge themselves, they were for others rather than for her. That she was not the only person within eight or ten hours to be startled by the sight of that little old man was abundantly evidenced later. John Stanchfield, Elias Palmer, Harold Ormthwaite, and Nathan Ridge, all farmers or market gardeners of the Colcord district, testified to frights and spooky feelings on being accosted by a dim grey figure plodding along the Colcord road in the lonely interval between midnight and morning. The dim grey figure seemed to have recognised the different teams by the section of the road through which they jolted, or by their flickering lamps. "'That you, Lias?' "'Why, yes. Who be you?' "'Darned if it ain't Jasper Fay. "'What under the everlasting canopy be you doing this way so late at night? "'So early in the morning, as you might say.' "'My poor boy, to be let out at five. Grunts of sympathy and inquiries concerning the nature of the truck being taken to market made up the rest of the conversation, which ended in a mutual, "'So long.' With John Stanchfield and Harold Ormthwaite, the exchange of salutations had been on similar lines. No one but old Nathan Ridge had had the curiosity to ask, "'What are you tramping the eight-mile for? Could have took the train at Marchfield and got out at the jail door.' 
Well, the grace didn't just suit. Marchfield's three miles from my place, and if it comes to tramping three miles, you might as well make it eight. Guess you're pretty well I tuck it out, aren't you? Well, I'm some tired. Been taking it easy, though. Left home about eight o'clock last night and just strolled along. Fact is, Nathan, I had to be out of my little place last night, root and branch, and it's kind of eased my mind, like, to be footing it through the dark. Guess you feel pretty bad, don't you? Well, I did. Don't so much now. Got used to it. No, it ain't that so much. It's just that if I've suffered, others will... But according to Mr. Ridge, further explanation was withheld. The speaker going on disappointingly to say, "'But guess I'll be keeping along. Hope you get your price on them peas. Awful sight of them in the market off this last dry spell.' So Jasper Fay trudged on. He trudged on patiently, with the ease of a man accustomed all his life to plodding through the soil, though now and then he paused. He paused for breath, or for a minute's repose, and sometimes to listen. He listened most frequently to sounds behind him, as if expecting pursuit. He listened to the barking of dogs, the gallop of grazing horses across the dark pastures, or to the occasional bray of a motorist's horn. When nothing happened, he went on again, though with each renewal of the effort his footsteps lagged more wearily. Dawn was grey by the time he had come face to face with the long, grim house of sorrow. It was grim unintentionally, grim in spite of well-meant efforts to cheer it up and make it alluring, at least to the passer-by. For him, Empelopsis had been allowed to clamber over the red-brick walls. For him, a fine piece of lawn was kept neatly cut. For him, the national flag floated during daylight over a grotesque pinnacle. For him, a fountain plashed on feast-days. Neither fountain, nor flag, nor sward, nor vine was visible, except to the outsider, but it was for him the effect was planned. For him, too, a little common had been set apart on the other side of the roadway, and garnished with a wooden bench under a noble fan-shaped elm. Jasper Fay sat down on the bench, as he had sat down on it many a time before, hunched and weary. For the three years, or nearly, in which Matt had been shut up here, the father had spent with him as many as possible of the minutes allowed for intercourse, prolonging the sense of communion by sitting and staring at the walls. In times past, he had stared in patient longing for the moment of the boy's release. But this morning he only stared. Behind the staring, thought was too inactive for either retrospect or forecast, and thought was inactive because both past and future now contained elements too big for the overtaxed mind to deal with. He could only sit wearily and expectantly on the bench, watching, at the end of one of those long wings, a small grey door on which he had been told to keep his eyes. After the first flicker of light the day came slowly. The lowlands around the prison were shrouded in a thin grey mist, through which Lombardy poplars and warders' cottages and prison walls loomed ghostly. When, a few minutes after the clock in the pinnacle had struck five, the grey door opened soundlessly and a shadowy form slipped out. The effect was like that of a departed spirit materialising within human ken. The shadowy form shook hands with someone who remained unseen, and after it had taken a step or two forward, the soundless door shut it out. It looked timorous and lone in the wide, ghostly landscape, advancing a few paces, stopping, searching, advancing again, but uncertainly. As it emerged more fully into view, 
it disclosed a bundle in the hand, a light grey suit, and a common round straw hat. It moved as though testing ground that might give way beneath it, or as trying the conditions of some new and awesome sphere of existence into which it had suddenly been thrust. With all his remaining forces concentrated into one sharp, eager look, Jasper Fay crept forward. The ground mist blurring his outlines, the two dim figures were face to face before the son perceived his father's presence or approach. On doing so, he started back. "'Why, father, what's the matter? You look—' His voice dropped to faintness. "'You look terrible!' But the father's faculties were already too exhausted to catch the movement and note of dismay. He was drained, even of emotion. All he could do was to extend his hand with the casual greeting, "'Well, Matt, how are you? Come to meet you.' He explained, however, the immediate programme, which was to go by the 5.30 train to Marchfield, whence, by taking the short cut through Willoughby's Lane and County Street, they would reach home for breakfast by seven. Home, it had to be told, was no longer the little place on the north bank of the pond, but a three-family house on the Thorley estate, with a back piazza for a yard, and nothing at all in the way of garden. A home without a garden to an old man who had lived in gardens all his life was more of an irony than a home without a roof-tree. But even this evoked from the sufferer only a mild statement of the fact. Mildness, resigned and apparently satisfied, marked all the turnings of the narrative unfolded as they plodded to the station, while the son took the opportunity to scan at his leisure those changes in the sunken face that had shocked him at the moment of encounter. It was no new tale that Matt heard, but it pieced together the isolated facts made known to him in the few letters he had received and the scattered bits of family news he had been able to pick up on visiting days. For all of it, he was prepared. He would have been prepared for it even if he had received no hint in advance, since it was nothing but what the weak must expect from the strong and the poor from the rich. "'We'll change all that,' was his only comment, but he made it whenever he found an opening. Only once did he permit himself to go beyond the dogged repetition of this phrase. "'Got in with some fellows there,' he jerked his head backward in the direction from which they had come, "'who've thought the whole business out. Could always get together, as trustees. Internationals, them fellows were. The IIA. Heard of them, haven't you? No bread and treacle in their programme. Been handing out that too long.' The difference between the face Matt Fay had looked forward to seeing and the one which was now turned up to him was that between a mirror and a pane of glass. In a mirror there would have been reflection and responsiveness. Here there was nothing but a blank, shiny stare, vitreous and unintelligent. Jasper Fay, it seemed to his son, had passed into some pitiful and premature stage of dotage. To the released prisoner the change was but one more determining factor in his own state of mind. He was prepared to find his mother in worse case than his father, and Rosie in worse case still. Poor little Rosie! She was the traditional victim of the rich man's son. So be it. Since it was for him to see that she was avenged, he asked nothing better. The more wrongs there were besides his own, the more he was justified in joining the campaign of blood and fire, of eloquence and dynamite to which he felt a call. He thought sullenly over these things, as the train jogged through the rich fields and market gardens on the way to Marchfield, and the quiet little man with the glassy stare and the gentle, satisfied, senile smile 
sat silent in the seat beside him. Matt Fay was glad of the silence. It left him the more free to gaze at the meadows and pastures, at the turnips and carrots and cabbages, of which the dewy glimpses fled by in successive visions of wonder. It was difficult not to believe that the sky had grown bluer, the earth greener, and the whole round of nature more productive during the years in which he had been put away. His surprise in this recognition of the beauty of the world gave a poignant, unexpected blend to his wrath at having been compelled to forfeit it. He got the same effect from every bird and bee and butterfly that crossed his path between Marchfield and the village. No yellowing spray of goldenrod, no blue-eyed ragged robin, but symbolised the blessings of which he had been cheated. In proportion, as the sun broke through the bank of cloud, burning away the mist and drawing jewelled rays from the dewdrops, the new recruit in revolution found his zeal more eager to begin. The very flagging and stumbling of the steps that tottered beside his own intensified his ardour. End of chapter 33